This is the Hollywood Adjacent Podcast. Welcome. And today we're going to be talking about One Night in Miami. The most extraordinary thing in a frame is a human being. I would never even consider crying during the West Wing. It's just appreciating people who are great. It's the best show of all time. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bob, a writer, videographer, and performer. And I'm Aaron, and I'm an actor, a voice actor, a director, and an acting coach. Today, we're watching a movie featuring a ton of historical figures. So aside from today's film, uh, let's go through our favorite biopic or biopic, however you choose to say it. For me, I really like the film I, Tanya. I'm not sure it's like the best biopic of all time, but it is so good. It's a 2017 film depicting the life of Tanya Harding. It was produced by Margot Robbie. But my favorite thing about this film is Paul Walter Hauser. He went on from this to do uh, Richard Jewell. He depicts a character that I've never seen depicted on film before. He's just like this really laid back kind of stone character. It is so interesting what he does. I'm a huge fan of that. Also, another really interesting fact about this film is that Margot Robbie actually used a scene from this right after they film finished filming it to... Uh, send to Quentin Tarantino as her audition for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And a fun fact about that movie, which I loved, is you and I saw it together at a SAG screening at Arclight. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so thanks, Bobby. Um, <laughs> my favorite biopic is Ray with Jamie Foxx and coincidentally Regina King, who happens to be the director of the film we're going to talk about today. It's interesting that you said that because I was trying to think back about the great biopics that have come back out over the last 20 years, and I deliberately did not choose Ray because, I don't know, something about it just didn't get me. Is there, what, what do you love so much about Ray? I was completely moved by that story, and I thought Jamie Foxx was unbelievable, just unbelievable in that role. I truly believed he was blind, the singing... Uh, and I thought the story was great. And how troubled of an individual Ray Charles was, but you forgave it for the beauty of the music he created. All right, well, we have so much to talk about today on the show, but first... Congratulations! So for me... Uh, I'm actually about to release a very special Valentine's episode of my podcast, Creating Christmas. It comes out the very first week of February, and so I've been working on that. This uh, episode is going to cover the history of the heart shape and how it came to be. And in addition to that, I've been making uh, the final batch of videos for the Redondo uh, Beach 10K, and you can check those out on the Redondo Beach Facebook page. I'm really proud of them, which is a weird thing to be proud of, I know, but super excited about the way they turned out. No, I think it's good to be proud of things you're accomplishing. For me, coaching, uh, a girl I coach booked her first guest spot on a CBS show called Bob Hart's Abishola, which is uh, Billy Gardell from Mike and Molly fame, his show. So it's kind of a big deal. And another girl I coach, she booked a film with Oscar winner. And it's super interesting. He doesn't talk to her nor will he do the scenes, her coverage scenes. So he does his scene, goes and waits in his trailer, and then she reads her scene with the script supervisor. When you're in a scene, Aaron, have you ever been given an opportunity on set not to read opposite your actor? No, 
Um, but I know some bigger stars do do that and some don't. Tom Hanks does not. Tom Cruise does not. They finish the scene with their actors as they should. Yeah. I mean, I've never even been given the choice. The only time I've been unable to do that is when it was a heavy effects shot and they wanted the other actor to be there and there was just a lot of movement behind the camera. And so they pushed (laughs) me out of the room and I just felt it it was weird to be removed from a piece of this thing I was making together. Totally. Yeah. Yep. All right. So before we launch into today's big review, is there anything else that you've been watching this week that you love? So I actually went down a little documentary uh, hole. I watched four episode documentary called The Reagans on Showtime. And action. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said himself, if you are not a good actor, you cannot be a good president. You would not have got elected president without Nancy. So your position has made it impossible. Doing everything we can. Doing everything we can. Which was really interesting. Um, didn't portray them in the best light, kind of as expected. And then I started the Tiger Woods documentary on HBO, which is excellent. The Reagans, did you find out a lot of things that you didn't know about? I don't know. I mean, I don't know much about them, period. Well, it turns out he dyed his hair, so <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's what, those are the gripping things you tune in for a documentary for. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Reagan really started kind of the deregulation process that, you know, is kind of where the Republican Party goes to. And the one thing they kind of left out is how bad the country was with inflation and oil at that point, just to try to boost any kind of business to get going. Um, and then the parallels between him being the head of a union, he was the head of SAG, and then how quickly he tried to dismantle unions or benefits union workers got, which was certainly interesting. I've always thought that's one of the most interesting things about his presidency is how he represented something that he then completely stood against. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As for me, I watched this movie on Hulu called Save Yourselves. The poof is in the cabin. Poof on the couch. Poof on the roof. What? Poof on the roof. Something you can hold on. What did Sean Connery say to the hostage who had a beard? I came here to shave you. Are we going to have to shave ourselves? So it's a millennial-ish like kind of take on an alien movie. However, the lead girl, Sunita Mani, who uh, I remember best from the progressive commercials where she's the girlfriend of the science spinner, um, she's phenomenal. She's so good in this movie. Uh, I looked her up after watching it. She was in a couple episodes of Glow. She's actually best known for her dancing in uh, Turn Down the What, the uh, music video. But she is so fantastic i can't wait to see what she does next or what she does in like a really strong film um because in this she grounds everything in such a unique way that i highly recommend watching this if for no other reason just for her performance it's really good awesome all right so are you ready to jump into this big review yes let's do it All right, so each week we choose a film and we take it apart from our unique perspectives. Uh, We'll talk about our overall impression of the film first, and then we'll get into a specific scene and take it down. Today, we're gonna be talking about the Amazon film, 
one night in Miami. You brothers, you could move mountains without lifting a finger. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. Who's the greatest? That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. All together, yeah. The entire city of Miami is celebrating. I'm the new heavyweight champion of the world, and I don't even have a scratch on my face. Oh, my goodness. Cash. Cash? Why am I so pretty? <laughs> All right, so the tagline for this movie is a fictional account of one incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gathered together to discuss their role in the civil rights movement and cultural upheaval of the 60s. Parts of this are based on a true story. It stars several people, but the main person that I took away from this was Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, and it has a bit part for Lance Riddick, which is really weird because he's best known maybe for his parts in John Wick. He usually gets big roles, so it's interesting to see him in the smallest part in the film. It's directed, as you said, by actress Regina King. This is her first feature, and it can be seen, and it was released by Amazon. So, Aaron, you mentioned this in the first episode of this podcast that you wanted to see this. So, uh, why did you want to watch this movie? Uh, Well, first, I'm friends with one of the actors, so I try to be supportive and watch everything he does. And secondly, I was super curious how they would, A, it was originally a play that was a one-scene, one-location play, and I was curious how they would make that into a film because a film needs movement in different locations for the most part. And secondly, two of the characters, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, have had biopics. And Denzel Washington played Malcolm X, Will Smith played Muhammad Ali, and they both did a fantastic job. And I was really curious, since they're so in our minds of the fictional character of these guys, the portrayal, how other actors doing it would do. And I thought they were great in accomplishing that. Uh, do you want to share who you're friends with that was in the film? Yeah, Aldous Hodge, who plays Jim Brown. So, uh, did this movie live up to your expectations, or what? Yeah, I I actually was really moved by this film, and didn't expect to like it as much as I did, um, because I bought into the portrayals, even though the actor Eli Gorey, who plays Muhammad Ali, he doesn't necessarily look that much like Muhammad Ali, but after like a few minutes, you completely buy into it. And I I thought it was really well done. And I didn't know Regina King directed it. So it was funny. I, when I finished watching, I'm like, oh, let me see which guy directed this. I remember thinking that and then look it up and it's Regina King. And I thought she did a, she did a really good job. I want to ask you one question about something you said. You said you're really moved by it. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What What does that mean when you say it? With me, I can be moved by performances that are good and the overall movie may not be good or TV show. But I was, something I took away is this movie takes place in 1964. So it's 57 years later and we're having a lot of the same discussions. I also like in arguments that there is no clear answer 
where both sides are right. You know, when Social Network came out, a good friend of mine didn't like that film. And I said, why not? She said, you don't know who was right or who was wrong. And I'm like, that's the whole point. They both thought they were right. Mm -hmm. And the tagline of that film is you don't make 500 million friends without making some enemies. And I, I thought, you know, in the scene we're going to discuss, they're both right. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I did not like this film. And I am excited to discuss this scene because I feel like a lot of the things that you like about the film did not hit me the same way. Mm-hmm. Just like you, knowing that it was uh, a play, I was really anxious to see what they're going to do with it especially since it's a big push usually i feel like movies that come from a static play are art house films and so this was not being billed as that um i think it would have performed better as a play Uh, i felt a lot of times things were static Uh, i got uh, the scene that we're going to talk about there's like a, a moment that i'll just i can't get over that was just so non theatrical um I thought the performances by everybody except for Leslie Odom Jr., who played Sam Cooke, were not as complex as they needed to be. And I I don't know. I I wanted this movie to be dynamic, and and I just didn't walk away with that. I know I understand what you're saying about not being sure who's right and wrong. However, I feel like the writer of this had a bone to pick with Malcolm X. I felt throughout the entire film, Malcolm X was trying to fit in with the rest of the group. And I think that comes out really clearly in the conversation about the music. Um, Going into this, Malcolm X was actually the character I was most excited about seeing because until watching this, I'd never seen the other Malcolm X uh, movie. I've watched it since, and I think it's great. Um, but I didn't know a lot about Malcolm X besides the talking points you get in high school and like, you know, the blurbs that you read here and there. Um, so I was really excited to see that. And this person did not match up at all with what I expected. Um, I've watched it three times now. And uh, my biggest takeaway is I think this is going to be a film that's going to be poured over by acting classes for the next five years. I think everyone's going to have to do this. Everyone's going to do the same yelling points. See, I don't think they yelled much. Even Malcolm X, I thought he was heated. Uh, the actor, um, I thought he was heated, but he didn't yell, in my opinion. And also, so if I can go back to something I like, mm-hmm. there's a scene in The Wire, the show The Wire, where... Avon Barksdale, played by Wood Harris, and Stringer Bell, played by Idris Elba, they're the two drug dealers. And Avon is street, and Stringer is academic and running the business. And Avon says, bro, you're not street enough. And Stringer says, and you're not business enough. And they both were right. And I thought that a lot of the discussions had in this scene they're both right. And so maybe I liked it in part because it reminded me of that scene, which I thought was so powerful. I think we got to jump into talking about this scene. I think we're dancing all around it. And I just, I I want to rebut that point, but it's just so specific to this scene. So uh, are you okay if we jump down, jump on down into this scene? Yeah, let's do it. 
All right, so the scene we're going to be breaking down today comes just after the one-hour mark. I think it's like a 102. It runs for about 10, 15 minutes. It's as the quartet makes their way back to the hotel room from when they were on the roof. So looking at this scene, uh, would you say it's fair to say that this is essentially a scene between Malcolm and Sam? It's it's Malcolm X facing off for Sam. This scene, absolutely. And it starts beautifully when they come back in the hotel and Muhammad Ali has become the heavyweight champion of the world that night. They come back into the hotel. Malcolm X goes across the room and Jim Brown says, are you guys okay now? And Sam Cooke says, I wasn't angry. Malcolm X is always pissed off. And the shot of Malcolm turning around, coming back into frame is so well done and builds up the entire tension that's going to carry the scene for the next 15 minutes. And it's really well done. I agree. I think that staging, the way they have the actors uh, kind of in the four corners of the room pulling together, mm -hmm. that's the most dynamic staging of the scene. And I feel like the staging falls apart after this. I have a couple problems. I'll, go, I'll agree with you. This is what I was talking about earlier about it feeling like a stage thing. During this early part of the discussion, Malcolm X crosses from one side of the bed to stand on the other side of the bed and Jim is in frame with him at that point. There's, I feel like this is the point in the film There's n where no one knows what to do with Jim. He splits focus in that scene. And then at one point, after, shortly after this, he just stands in the bathroom for a while. So completely what I was going to say and really bad, because Jim Brown has such a great line where he says, you guys pulled out the knives and if I get hurt, I'm fixing to hurt someone. So he's giving them the warning, don't fuck with me. And then he walks in the bathroom and stares at himself in the mirror for the remainder of the scene, which is super weird. Like, he doesn't go to the bathroom, and it's not like it's a bathroom in a big house where he's getting away. So I do completely agree with you there. Let me say something to that. He also throws that line away. That line is completely mm -hmm. lost, and... It's he's got this unmated, unmotivated movement going on. So that line, while it is written very well, is a, is lost in the entire film. Um, and to the point of him standing in the bathroom, I think the idea is he's standing in there because he's taking in the conversation from like a distance. However, mm -hmm. they turn the volume down on all the people speaking outside of the room, so it's almost impossible to hear what's going on. So. It comes off as he's just having a moment with his thoughts, which we have no idea what those thoughts are, and they never really, they, it never really leads to anything. He doesn't come out of the bathroom with any kind of new energy or bring some new information to the scene. He just eventually decides he's stared at himself long enough and comes out of the bathroom. Mm -hmm. I, Agreed. I mean, I I just felt like this is this scene is a great example of throughout the entire film there really wasn't a point for Jim. Except he's Jim Brown. And the, yeah, for this movie, it was about Muhammad Ali. It was more about Sam Cooke and more about Malcolm X. Jim Brown's character was actually probably the smallest. Um, even though, you know, years later, he's considered probably the best football player to ever play and then had a really great acting career as well. Um, something else I really liked moving from that scene mm -hmm. They bring up the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And oh, Malcolm X says... I love this. I love this this piece. Yes, go ahead. 
Malcolm X says, well, what the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says, and Sam Cooke cuts him off and says, I didn't ask what he thought. I asked what you thought. And when he tells you to shut the fuck up, you shut the fuck up. And I thought that was fantastic. And later in the scene, they go back to organized religion. The uh, Elijah Muhammad lives in the biggest house in Chicago and lives like a pharaoh. The delivery of that 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 monologue that starts with "I know what house his house is," mm-hmm. that is that is electrifying. Mm-hmm. Watching that, and Malcolm X owns up to the fact he's like, "Yeah, I've been to dinner there," which was a super weird. And he's like, "Oh, so you see, he lives like a king." But I think that just goes back to there's like a there's a point in this which is to make Malcolm X seem like he does not fit in here. He's always trying to find a new reason, a new celebrity that he that gives value to him. But the to him the, or to the cause. Yeah, the delivery of, of Le- Leslie Odom Jr. doing that doing that monologue, he's got so many levels. I right. disagree that Malcolm X doesn't yell. I feel like Malcolm X always goes to anger and then cries about it. But Leslie Odom Jr. finds all of these levels to play with and it would be interesting to have seen him do this same part before he did Hamilton and then after because the confidence he has is something that you only get having perform, 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 perform. The skill set and, you know, I always coach like each sentence, every line is a different thought and he is completely moment to moment in each and every thing he says. And from there, there's a great thing about another shot when Ali says passion is kind of a strong word about his interest Mm -hmm. in becoming a Muslim. And Jim Brown turns around and it's like a two-part turnaround. Mm -hmm. And it is so well done as an actor Mm -hmm. doing that to create. He didn't just turn around. Mm -hmm. He like shifted his shoulders, and then he turned around to look. And it was a really beautifully done part. I thought uh, I thought that was an interesting, the staging, so he says it, the camera is way back on the other side of the room. Uh, Malcolm X is uh, right beside the camera, and we're watching everybody else on the far side of the room kind of clustered together in the kitchen, kitchenette area. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point to bring Muhammad Ali back into this because while I don't think Jim Brown really had a place in this entire film, Muhammad Ali was kind of, for a large section of the film, almost felt like comic relief. Like, he won the title Well, Ali always did that. Even when Ali was ranting and raving, it was a little bit funny. But the problem I have with that in this film is a lot of the commentary about this film has been... It catches black men speaking to each other in a way that you don't usually see when no one, when no white people are around, just casually talking to each other. And Muhammad Ali is never given the chance just to kind of hang out, except maybe this line right here, where he kind of stumbles over saying the word. To your point, so Malcolm X says to Ali, you know, what's your hesitation now? And Jim Brown says he didn't think he was going to win. And 
you know, Ali's kind of like, no, 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 I'm the greatest, and I knew. But it showed that only a fellow athlete could understand that fear at that level of competing, that you're going all out and you can win or lose, and that's part of the price you pay. I feel like that is a a, a subplot or like a theme that was not explored enough in this film. And to that point, it's really easy to forget watching this movie that Muhammad Ali just made history 45 minutes before. They don't do a great job with that, granted. Yeah, like I think that idea that what you just said, that Jim is there because he has this connection because they're both the best at what they do. And so as Muhammad Ali says later to Sam Cooke, there's not many people that understand what we're up against. Um, I would love to have seen that explored more because that is something that uh, would have been a nice tonal shift away from the, we've got to do this. We've got to, be, we could show how African-Americans are sticking together. We got to do this thing. I think that would have been really interesting. And I think I like that breakaway moment there because it gave some relief because shortly after that, Sam Cooke and Malcolm X go back to this boxing match of words throughout it. Um, which, uh, are you all right if I move on to the next Yeah, thing? well, it's a boxing match of thoughts. Yeah. And completely different thoughts. It comes back to, to the boxing match shortly after this where Malcolm X uh, decides to bring out Bob Dylan and play uh, uh, How Many Roads Must a Man Walk Down? Blowing in the wind. Yeah, so they play Bob I didn't understand from this who what does Malcolm X want from Sam Cook? Because at this point, both in the script and in the performance, Malcolm X is just there to pummel Sam Cook into submission. He just wants him to shut up and like that's not that's not how you win friends and influence enemies. So I don't know what Malcolm X wanted out of this. He got he, the idea was he's here to get Muhammad Ali to or Cassius Clay to finally commit to being a Muslim. But now he's going to beat up on Sam Cooke and like show Sam Cooke how what a crappy person person he is I, I, I never it started here where it was like too much it was too much anger too much of that one note from Muhammad from Malcolm I X. think Malcolm X was coming up place of your music can't be popcorn it can't be feel good and make people dance it has to be to upset people make them think challenge them and which was not at all the type of artist Cook was. Uh, he he certainly later, you know, wrote some very powerful and moving songs. Um, but they also get into the mindset of what's business, right? And, you know, Sam Cook asked Malcolm X, so why should a black person run a business like shit? It's they're running a business. And to go in, um, you know, when they bring up the Valentinos, the mm-hmm. song It's All Over that he mm-hmm. sold to the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. The Rolling Stones went to number one. In the Valentino's version, no one ever heard it again. And Cook says the artist was crushed by that. And Malcolm X jumps in. He says, as he should be. And Sam Cook said, let me finish. You know? He was upset for six months, and then he started getting his royalty checks. And... My point with that is today we all still do the same thing, especially in the political climate we're in. 
we just hear something and we go off without getting a full understanding of the entire picture. And I thought Sam Cooke did such a good job of educating Malcolm X each and every time to the point. And when he says, you know, this is where he brings up the pharaoh, that uh, Elijah Muhammad lives like a pharaoh. But the last thing Sam Cooke says about this, he says, I don't want a piece of the goddamn pie. I want the recipe. Yeah. That, that I mean, he got the best lines, I feel like. like he got In the this best scene, lines. sure. He got the best lines of the scene, and he delivers them the best. But he also had the most to say. But it shouldn't have... It, it shouldn't have been quite like that because Malcolm X was... I I mean, I didn't sit down on the script and look, but Malcolm X had so many lines in this scene. Mm-hmm. But they just kind of swirl around each other. It's shortly after they... When when Malcolm X pulls out the, the Bob Dylan, they play it. He keeps pushing Sam's buttons till Sam leaves. Then Malcolm, gets, Malcolm X gets this pretty decent monologue where he talks about how everyone's got to be on this side or against them. I feel like from pulling out the Bob Dylan album, the actor playing Malcolm X went through and highlighted the the things that he thought would make good trailer bits and made sure to hit all those lines really hard because he was given as many words as Sam Cooke, but they weren't delivered as, as meaningfully or with as much variation. And so he comes, that's why I think he comes off one note because he has to hit this piece he has to hit this this piece but there's never any change like you said sam cook is constantly working on ways to educate him malcolm x is just looking at another way to slug him um so i don't agree with that really um, okay wow all right then t- <laughs> yeah i i don't think malcolm x was one noted at all um i think sam cook had a stronger performance because the dialogue allowed him because Malcolm X's whole point was, you know, you can't be on the fence. You have to pick a side right now. And Sam Cooke, so Malcolm X really only had that one argument. He phrased it a lot of different ways. But Sam Cooke was loaded with rebuttals. And coming from there are many different ways and many different sides of the fence, right? I don't have to be militant and I don't have to be angry and I don't have to call the white man the devil. But you know what I can do is I can go to a Rolling Stones concert and laugh because I own one of the songs they're playing and I'm getting paid and the artists, the Valentinos are getting paid and will continue to get paid forever. And that's about ownership, which Malcolm X couldn't understand any of that because he's never made a dollar or owned a business. Yeah. I'm going to concede the point that it, that Malcolm X was more than one note. Um, but I do want to go back to his final monologue in this scene uh, and something that's not part of his performance, which I think on its own, his final monologue in this scene is really strong. I think it's written well. I think as much as I think he was one note, it's very, it, it's delivered, I think, as it was intended to be delivered. And it feels like a very strong piece and I can only imagine acting classes are going to assign that piece to a lot of actors for the next couple of years uh, however the direction made no sense so Sam Cooke walks out of the room Malcolm X pulls off his glasses like he's about to cry 
then he starts up with this whole thing of like it's got to be it's got to there's only our side or their side there's no room for anyone to not be on the thing but if you look he's preaching this to a deaf audience neither jim brown nor cassius clay are really listening or being affected by it they're just watching their friend rant for a while so it's a strong monologue for the audience but it's it's almost as if Regina King was like, here we are going to break the fourth wall. He's just going to talk to the audience, and the other actors are going to be in the space because we've already had one walk into the bathroom, and so we can't do that again. And Ali leaves anyway. He says, "Let me get him before he drives off," which he would have done prior to Malcolm X saying all that. Yeah, I was exactly, okay with it exactly. and, and did forgive it. But yeah, it was a weird staging. But again. We're coming from a place that this is based off a play and a one location play. It all took place in a hotel room. So they had already gone to the roof. They had had, you know, they we met them at the fight. They'd been outside and and then the ending, they get outside. So I was okay with it. And Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. also I felt, and I thought the actor portrayed this, Malcolm X gets so heated, he he can't help himself. I think if... Both of those, I think if he were alone in the room, he would have finished that rant to himself in the mirror. I think that's, I think that's a very valuable point as far as a way to look at the character. And I think that takes me back to what I said in the beginning. I had a very clear idea of who Malcolm X was based on very little information about Malcolm X. And so to see him as this other person was jarring to me throughout it. But to think of him as this person who gets heated and can't control himself, but would do that by himself is just a definition of a different character, right? And that's because Malcolm X's whole career, and if you can call it a career, is making these huge speeches, which are not conversation, which is not a rebuttal. It's him stating all this stuff and then walking off a stage. Yeah. So he may not. You know, he's so locked into his vision. He can't even criticize the nation of Islam when they're kicking him out. Mm -hmm. You know, so Mm -hmm. he is so locked into his thought on this that I think he would completely have the conversation by himself. Hmm. And then, so we're at the end of the scene Mm -hmm. and Ali leaves to chase after Sam Cooke. So Malcolm X is sitting at the table And Jim Brown sits down next to him, and it is such a beautiful transition. And Jim Brown looks at him and says, I find it kind of funny you light-skinned brothers are the most militant. And Malcolm X has the balls to respond, I've never paid any attention to complexion. And immediately, Jim Brown responds, don't suddenly talk to me like I'm stupid. And then goes into the difference of being a light-skinned African-American or darker skin Mm -hmm. and that he finds the most militant are the lighter skin. Mm -hmm. And and Malcolm X had nothing to say in response to that scene. Which, looking at the script, this is the strongest scene Jim has in the entire film. Absolutely. He has the scene with Jeff Bridges, which is just horrible, I think. But he has these great moments. And then he's robbed of... Well, hang on. Let's go back to the Jeff Bridges scene earlier. Why was that horrible? It was just... There was nothing to it. I felt the actor playing Jim Brown 
was working with the idea that he wanted a to be locked into his body and to be on guard. And then he's delivered the line and he gets slapped in the face anyway. And we get this weird faraway reaction shot that we've kind of been waiting for. Did you expect the end scene with Bo Bridges, how that scene ended? No. Because it, but t- when it, it came, threw me. Yeah, but when it came, weren't you all, weren't you kind of like, oh yeah, well that's that's this kind of movie. Of course, that's what the point of this movie was. Or the point of people like that back yeah. then or even today that, you know, can say I love you to your face, but I can't welcome you into my home because yeah. you're a different color. Um, so that scene was uh, set up what happened in it, set up the fact that Bo Bridges wouldn't let Jim Brown, uh, Aldous Hodge into his house. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the payoff was tremendous for the scene. Even if the payoff is good, there wasn't a lot of meat in there for the actors, right? And there's not a lot mm-hmm. of stuff to do. And then he has this monologue here where he talks about the different shades of African-Americans and what it means. And it just kind of ends. Mm-hmm. It just kind of stops. And I feel like he was really robbed from having a strong scene. That could have been something. This writer could have had Malcolm X feed him something to let him talk about a little bit more. I mean, he's been standing around for... 30 minutes now so to really give him something but I also and again I don't know what's fact or what's fiction within this but I wonder how ballsy Malcolm X was to talk to Sam Cooke a little singer versus to throw attitude towards Jim Brown who we know is a tough guy Mm -hmm. and his doesn't take shit from anybody and Muhammad Ali the heavyweight champion of the world he doesn't He doesn't um, question them as as much as Sam Cooke. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think about that, but you're right. I just thought he sees... Going back into the scene just for a second, he, he has a line that says something along the lines of, uh, Jim pushes us ahead with his with his sports and with his, with his language, and Muhammad pushes us with his language and his fists, and then you don't do anything. I think maybe that is a, an aspect that I, that I miss that he doesn't feel like he can push on the athletic people as much as Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke is more open to criticism. And certainly bigger physically and tough guys and stand up to the bodyguards and they're mm-hmm. not they're physically imposing people. Mhm. That Mhm. Malcolm X is not. And I, mm-hmm. I I did take that away, that he was pretty brave talking to somebody his size. Mm-hmm. As an acting coach and as an actor and as a director, is there anything that you learned or would reuse from this film or? The shot of Aldous, of Jim Brown turning around in response was so well done and then the introduction shot where sam cook says malcolm x is just angry Mm -hmm. and how the camera captures malcolm x from across the room he turns into it and then they pick up the camera on the other side and he walks charges to sam Mm -hmm. cook i thought Mm -hmm. was really well done Mm -hmm. um again i thought this shot this scene was beautifully shot with the exception of Jim Brown going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. He could have just sat in the corner 
It would have been fine. And Muhammad Ali should have left the second Sam Cooke left. He didn't need to hear any of it. Yeah. And then I think that would have actually been interesting if Muhammad Ali, it's a better transition, if he leaves immediately, Malcolm X makes that whole speech because he can't help himself. And he's just making it to Jim Brown, Brown, but really to himself. And then Jim Brown just responds with, I find it funny, the lighter skin, the more militant you are. I think that would have solved a lot of the problems I have with that, actually. I love this idea that Malcolm X can't help himself and he has to deliver this, even if he knows it's not going to impact anybody. He just has to say it. Having both Jim Brown and uh, Cassius Clay in the room and them not be affected by it really steals any thunder that 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 has. I didn't notice it on my first watching, but on my second and third watch, I was just really aware that no one in the room cared what Malcolm X had to say. If you take Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay out of the room, you don't have that drain. You have Jim choosing not to be impacted by it and Malcolm X not caring and playing the thing to the entire room and maybe to the bodyguards outside and to himself. I think that would have solved a lot and it would have made a lot more sense. Muhammad Ali just left immediately and said, I need to go get him. That would have, that's, I think that's a really, really good move. Oh, I think that would have, I would think that would have redefined Malcolm X to me in this film in a, in a very meaningful way for my appreciation of the film as a whole. Well, I guess I should have directed it instead of (laughs) Regina King. So, um, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, So I met Jim Brown once. So I was at the driving range in Studio City hitting golf balls, and the stall next to me was open, and a little black boy, like five years old, came up, and he had his little bag. I'm like, hey, buddy. I'm like, I wanted to make sure, like, he was mature enough not to, you know, run in front of somebody. I was actually looking out for his safety. And then I see he's with Jim Brown. And I'm like, how you doing, Mr. Brown? He goes, I'm doing all right, son. So, and I assumed the child was his grandson and it was actually his son, which I thought, I'm like, good for you. (laughs) But um, anyway, uh, I found it really interesting. We hit balls next to each other for about an hour and every white dude that walked by said, excuse me, Mr. Brown, just want to shake your hand. Every white dude with a kid stopped and introduced him and told him, like, the importance. And I just watched the whole thing, and I was mesmerized because this is a guy that has faced racism I couldn't, I can't imagine his whole life or a great deal of his life. And now he's in a place where every white person is calling him Mr. Brown and showing godfather level of respect and I, I i thought it was a really nice moment yeah yeah and he's a big man he's a he's a big man <laughs> like old. he's old but so he's still like huge and i was like oh okay uh do you have any last thoughts about one night in miami no i really enjoyed it I really did. I thought it was a good. I, I also maybe you're right. Maybe I took away that these are all scenes that can be done in acting class. Yeah, and it's. I I thought the actors did a good job. And just to reiterate, you know, they 
actors have done these roles and they're ingrained in our mind. And the mm-hmm. I thought these guys all did a really good job. Um, I I think I have a better appreciation for what it was, but I I still it, it's still um not one that I would watch again personally. But uh, well, you've said you've watched it three times. Yeah, I've correct? watched it three times. I've in a it week. So maybe I mean, maybe I it's probably done for you. <laughs> so. All right, now it's time for our martini shout-out. Uh, is there anything you're looking forward to watching this coming week? Yeah, so uh, I want to watch Little Things on HBO Max. Uh-huh. That's mine, uh, too. The movie That's what I'm looking forward to. Denzel Washington and Remy Malik, And I still want to watch the Beastie Boys documentary on Apple TV, <laughs> which is the whole reason I got Apple TV like two months ago, and I still haven't watched it. All right. Well, that minds this minds little things as well. Uh, you know, I was just reading that uh, it got released and theaters were actually filling up with people going to see it in the theater. It's like the first movie that's bringing people to theater again. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Join us next week when we break down The Vast of Night, another pick by Aaron. Uh, it's available to stream on Amazon Prime if you want to watch it before the show. If you like the show, please rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you liked it or didn't like what we had to say, reach out to us. Uh, Aaron, where can they find you? Uh, Instagram at Pontus, P-O-N-T-I-C-E. All right. And you can find me, Bob, at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Civil Matador, C-I-V-I-L-M-A-T-A-D-O-R. And we will see you guys next time.